We come together for the reading of the word. As I mentioned to you guys in the last uh, discussion that we had together, my last rant is, is I, you know, I, I emphasize to you the importance of actually reading the word for yourself, just simply the activity, the discipline of reading the word of God for yourself, not waiting to hear what somebody else has to say about the word, but for you to actually hear it for yourself and to engage with it. Um, I truly believe this, that if we do that, a lot of the pain, a lot of the brokenness, a lot of the suffering, a lot of the things that we see have transpired in whatever people call the church or whatever remnant of church that is, then, you know, if, if we would actually simply just read it, right, we wouldn't, we wouldn't engage, we wouldn't get caught up in some of these things. And I believe that just like sheep, there are those who have, you know, really fallen astray and they've fallen astray from the fact that just people have been influenced by those who had selfish intentions, selfish motives, those who were demonically influenced. And so anyway, um, you know, I, I'm just here just to share the word with y'all. That's all I'm here to do. Um, that's all I'm here to do. I'm just here to share. I'm here to engage with you in the word. I'm here to just journey with you in the scriptures. And that's what we've been doing. I know we had a little bit of a break and so good to be back. But uh, I'm here to journey with you in scripture. I'm here to read through text with you, uh, read through large portions of text, and then spend time reflecting on it. This is your opportunity to eavesdrop into a conversation that I'm having with God. And what I engage with, uh, how I engage on a regular, um, on a regular day, um, this is my rhythm. This is my rhythm. And I, I really pray that it would become um, all of your rhythms. You know, maybe you don't have an hour a day. Maybe you only have 15 minutes a day. Maybe you only have 30 minutes a day. Well, if you only have 30 minutes a day, then just just read with me for, for 20 minutes because that's about how long I read. And then afterwards, you know, go about your day. Um, you don't have to listen to me rant, but if you want to, you can hang around and listen to me rant. But I don't even, you know, I'm not even stressed about you listening to me rant. If you would just simply read with me, that's it. If you would just simply read, I believe that just the engagement, the activity of reading the word is profoundly transformative. And I know many of you can testify to that. Many of you can attest to that reality that it was, it really was just simply in the engaging of reading the word that a lot of things have changed for you. Your perspective on what faith is and Christianity and all of that has all changed for you simply because you have committed your time to the reading of the word. And so that's what we're going to do. So we read and then we rant. Yesterday, all I did was rant. Um, but today we're going to read and we're going to rant. Okay. And the three things that I want you to be asking when you're reading the scriptures is, is I want you to ask God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? That's simply it. God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? The second question that I want you to ask is God, what are you revealing concerning people? That's the second question. And then the third question that I want you to be asking as you read this text and as you meditate in our time of reading is, God, what are you revealing concerning me? Those are the three questions. Okay. God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? God, what are you revealing concerning people? And the third question is, God, what are you revealing concerning me? And so that's what I pray that you would commit to as we pray and commit to our time in the reading of the word. Um, we are reading through Psalms. We've read through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and now we are in the book of Psalms. Okay, we're in the book of Psalms, and we've read all the way up to chapter forty-two. 
And so we've read the first book in the book of Psalms. Just a quick preface here, as you guys may notice, maybe you see it appended to your Bibles. Um, the book of Psalms is a, it's actually a collection of, of songs. We, we call it the, it's a mixtape. Okay. It's a curated collection of, of songs that were sung by the Hebrews um, during their time of captivity. And it was meant and it was intended to encourage them as they journeyed through um, uh, this season, this period in their lives in captivity. And so it was a, a speaking of what God has done in the midst of their suffering. And it was also a, a proclamation to what was to come. And so it was prophetic. So the Psalms are prophetic. At the same time, the Psalms are also reflective. I'm only prefacing all this because it's been a while since we've been here, but it's important for you to know this, that this is a collection, but more so it's not just one mixtape. It's actually a collection of five mixtapes. The book of Psalms is a collection of five books. And so um, we read, we just read through the first book in the book of Psalms. That's why, you know, when we talk about a book or um, books of the Bible or the Bible being a book. The Bible is not a book. Okay, the Bible is an encyclopedia. Um, the Bible is a collection of books. Okay, um, and the book of Psalms is not a book. It's a collection of songs. Okay, it's a collection of songs and it's broken up into five books. And so we've read the first book in the book of Psalms. Today, we're going to start digging into the second book of the book of Psalms. And we'll be reading from Psalm 42. And so I pray that you would be encouraged as we read. But before we do so, let's just pray. Father, I ask that you would uh, speak to us today. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, insight, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us clarity. Father, I pray, Lord, that your wisdom, Lord, would uh, be revealed to us. Father, reveal who you are to us. Reveal your heart to us. Reveal your will to us. You reveal your desire to us, Lord. Give us clarity. Give us revelation, Lord, as we engage in your word. And Father, I pray for um, those of us who are hearing today, Lord, let it reveal something about those who are around us, Lord. Speak to me today, Lord, as I read this word about people. And, and Father, Lord, reveal to me, Lord, things that need to be corrected in me. Um, we all need it. And, and so, Father, I just pray that you would uh, posture us all together, Lord, as we read this. Father, we have people from all around the world, from all different areas, Father, from all different places, Lord, coming together, Lord, to read your words. So, Father, I just pray right now, Lord, that you would, Lord, just reveal yourself. And I ask that in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. We're going to read for a little bit. And after that, we're just going to go where the Spirit leads, okay? And we're going to ask God, what is, he, what is he speaking into? And I'm going to share with you whatever it is that God is speaking into. Um, Psalm 42. That's where we're at. We're in Psalm 42. We're just going to continue to keep reading through the Bible. Psalm 42, and it says this in verse one, as a deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? When I remember these things, I will pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise with the multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. 
for the help of his countenance. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill of, sorry, from the hill Mitzar, deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him and the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. Oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let me, sorry, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Hmm. And on the harp I will praise you, O oh God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Psalm 44. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the people and cast them out for they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword nor did their own arm save them but but it was your right hand your arm and the light of your countenance because you favored them you are my king O god command victories for jacob through you we will push down our enemies through your name we will trample those who rise up against us for i will not trust in my bow nor shall i Shall my sword save me, but you have saved us from our enemies, and you have put to shame those who hated us. In God, we boasted all day long and praise your name forever. Selah. But you have cast us off and put us to shame, and you do not go out with our enemies. You make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have, spo have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us up like sheep intended for food and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. You make reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me and the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. But you have severely broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, 
Would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for the sake, sorry, yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise. Do not cast us off forever, ever. Why do you hide your face huh? and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Let's read one more chapter. 45. My heart is overwhelming with good theme. I recited my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty, ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory places by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women, and at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also in your father's house, so the king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors, virgins. Her companions who follow her shall be brought to you with gladness and rejoicing that they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make the princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Amen. Ah. Hmm. Um, I let me let me do one thing today. And then I'm gonna just share my thought for our reading today. I'm gonna do one thing. And I think it's always good to do it, especially after we've come back from from a break. Okay, especially when we come back from a break, I think it's important that I do this because I think it's critically important that we never lose sight and we never lose perspective of the word. We never lose perspective because, as I've mentioned to you, one of the uh, the tragedies of the modern day Western Christian, particularly the Western Christian and those who are Eastern have been very much so influenced by, by Western ideology and Western thinking. But for those of you who understand exactly what I mean, when I say the Western Christian, I, I have some grievances 
for you. Let me say that. Um, I have, I have some grievances for the Western Christian. I have some grievances for you. My grievance for you is this. My grievance for you is that you read the Bible as if it is written directly to you rather than reading the Bible as if it is written for you. And because you read the Bible as if it is written to you, you often interpret the scripture through your experiential lens. And because you interpret the scripture through your experiential lens, you have isogeted and egogeted the text. <laughs> and so your study of the scripture is more ego-driven than it is actually looking to glean and to pull from what the scriptures actually say. And that is the problem with Western Christianity. We don't read the Bible in the context that we're supposed to read it. And that's why we often fall into misinterpretation of the scriptures. I say that, and, and I want to make sure you understand this because I think it's very, very important. It's very, very important because it is actually the first ingredient to misinterpretation of the Bible. Okay. It's the first ingredient to misinterpretation of the Bible. Because again, the church, what the church has grown up doing, what we've grown up for, because a lot of us have grown up in church. And yet we actually don't understand what the this book is actually saying. We actually don't understand this text. Um, and it's part because, you know, it's been mistaught and misappropriated and all that good stuff. And so I, I, like I said, this is not a Bible study, so I'm not going to do this right now. I'm not going to go into a full-blown Bible study with you, but I want to at least give you perspective. Okay. I want to at least give you perspective so that when you read it, you're actually reading it from the right posture. I said this before, and I'll say this again. When you read the Bible, you have to read it first from the perspective of the person who wrote it to the person it was being written to. That's the first thing. When you read the Bible, you cannot be reading it, not actually taking into account the author of whatever book it is that you're reading and the audience that they're writing it to. The authors here in the scripture are um, Hebrews. The authors are the ancient Hebrews, the ancient Hebrew people. And, and so these authors are ancient Hebrew people writing specifically to Hebrew people. This is important because the Hebrews, their language is different. Their interpretation is different. Their, um, their uh, insight, their context is different. When you read it through the lens now of a Hebrew person, then you begin to understand what is actually transpiring in the reading of the text. I take a break every time to actually break this down for you because we get lost in the sauce when we simply read it. We're like, okay. So he's saying this and he's saying that he's saying this back up for one moment. Okay. Back up for one moment. And what I wanted, want you to do when you back up is first read it to see what the author is saying to the people 
that it's being written to. And then to see now what the implications are for you in the reading of the text. Because the truth of the word will not be revealed to you by trying to take an ancient text and, and, and taking it and going, okay, so this is what it is. Is the word contemporary? It is the uniqueness of this word, that because this word brings revelation to God, it is antiquated and yet at the same time contemporary. But you have to read it from the right perspective, first off. Okay. Um, I, I, I like, I like, you know, and again, I don't often, um, I don't often comment on what people are saying in the chat, uh, because I want to make sure I keep this flowing since I put this on the, um, since I put this on the read and rant podcast, but I just want to point this out because I know there's a lot of you and I know you guys are getting more vocal because you guys didn't like what I was saying yesterday when I was kind of ranting yesterday about Christianity or about the scripture and about faith and about what it means to be a Christian. Um, if we talk about Christianity, the institution and the Christian Christianity, the institution was one that was established through the expansion of the Roman empire. It is of Greco Roman influence. And so absolutely there was a European influence that came in and took what was actually fundamentally Christian and that European influence then institutionalized it and created what we know as the Holy Roman Catholic Church. That's why it's called the Holy Roman Catholic Church. That is not the Christianity that we see in the scriptures. It is not the Christianity that we see in the Bible. And I know this is going to get real uncomfortable for some people, but it's important that, that I emphasize this. If you talk about Christianity, that is the movement, that is the way of Jesus Christ. And you talk about disciples of Jesus Christ and you talk about the scripture it originated in uh, what we know now as West Asia and North Africa. That is the origination. So he would say that Christianity is the white man's religion. I'm trying to understand what you mean by that, because there are those who will say, well, this Bible means nothing or this Bible is of no effect. I came to tell you that that is the influence of the enemy. That is the influence of the devil that seeks to kill and to destroy. Um, and so when, you, when, when everybody comes up with this idea or this ideology of Christianity is the white man's religion, they say in a very myopic perspective, they say in a very small microscopic perspective so that they can draw you away from the truth because it is Christ that is the truth. It is Jesus that is the truth. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And so what they do is they draw you away from it to create division, to then glorify themselves because now what they'll tell you is that they were the chosen people of God. They'll say that they were the chosen people of God, of course, with no biblical support or no biblical reference. They'll just take scripture and they'll make it work out for themselves. I only say that because I see a lot of you really vocal in the chat right now, not realizing that even you have been deceived because you have not read the totality of the scripture. You've only read what you intend to read so you can push your own narrative. But what we see through the scriptures that he came to reconcile all men to himself. We see through the book of Revelation that he came to make one all nations, all tongues, all cultures. But here's the thing. And, and again, I just wanted to back up for a moment because, again, we have misinterpretations. And actually, the reason why I'll say this, another quick side note. I'm already ranting. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm already ranting. But y'all y'all should get used to this. But you want, you want to know the reason why we've got Hebrew Israelites? You want to know the reason why we have all these other 
um, offshoots from Christianity, all these other movements against Christianity, all these other movements that exist. I'll tell you why we have them. We have them because the church wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. And the church wasn't reflecting what it was supposed to reflect. And the church wasn't preaching what it was supposed to preach. And because of the disingenuousness and because of the misinterpretation of the scripture and because of our myopic politicizing of the word and because of our myopic uh, um, culturalizing of the word, because we made the word work for us rather than having the word do a work in us. That is the reason why we have other movements outside of Christianity, because let's, let's just be let's just be real with it. Ours is a lie as well, because we didn't fully teach the truth. Because we didn't fully speak the truth, it left room for other false ideologies to come in and to be movements against Christianity. And that's the problem. When you when you preach Christ, when you preach Christ, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, it's been a while. I know I'm getting lit. I don't want to get too lit and I don't want to get into too much trouble, but I have to make sure I say this and I know I'm ranting and I hope I can get to what I want to say here and what this says, but it is important. It is important for us. If we're going to interpret the scripture right, if we're going to appropriately interpret scripture, we need to know how to read it. We need to know how to read it because a lot of us read it wrong. Start off by saying this. And again, it was my preface, but I want to make sure that I don't overemphasize this, but I emphasize it enough is this is a Hebrew people reading from a Hebrew author. And what you have to understand is from the beginning, what the Hebrews were doing is Hebrew, the Hebrews were helping people understand the work that God does in bringing justice to the earth, in restoring all things and making all things right. That is the work of the scripture. That is the work. That is the whole purpose of all of this. Because again, when we don't understand that, when we don't have a Hebrew perspective, we come up with all these other false theologies and all these doctrines that that actually don't align with what we're reading. You know, the way we read is not the way the Hebrew, the Hebrews would look at the way we read this and they would go, what is, what is he, what is he talking about? Um, you know, for the brother who's calling Jesus Lucifer, I just came to tell you that the, the Bible has a word for you as well. They call that an antichrist. And so I have no more discussion, no more conversation to say to you anymore. Uh, but let's continue on. Um, I thought I was trying to help you, but I realize you're influenced by the by the devil himself. Uh, back to what I was saying, okay? Um, it is critically important, okay, that when we read the text, okay, when we read the text, we read it from that perspective. So let me back up. The book of Genesis was about God's order. The book of Genesis was about the divine system and the divine order of things. Eden was a reality that was both spiritual and physical. Eden is the marriage of the spiritual and the physical. We don't see that because we're looking at it through a Western lens. But when you remove your cultural filters, you'll begin to see what Eden was all about. Eden was about the, the spiritual and the physical being made one. It was about a symbiotic reality, a spiritual and physical. That's why people can look all over the world for Eden. They're not going to find Eden. Okay. You're not going to find Eden because Eden is not a geographical location. 
It is the confluence of a geographical location and a spiritual reality. And so when we talk about creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth without form of void. Darkness came upon the face of the spirit of God hovered over the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. Notice that God was bringing order to all things. The book of Genesis, especially the first two chapters, okay? The first two chapters, make sure, make sure you, you get the full theme of it. The first two chapters, we taught, the Westerner says it's about creation and how God created everything. But we missed that it's not just about God's creation. It's about God's justice and it's about God's order. It's about God bringing order to all things. Okay, that's what the book of Genesis is all about. It's about God establishing order. That's why every time God separates the light from the darkness, he separates the land from the waters. He separates the waters. He separates the, the, the animals from the ground. He separates the animals from the sea. Notice he's, he's separating, separating, separating. He's putting order to things because, again, the creation of things is the bringing of order to things. So that's a symbiosis in and of itself. Then God says, in Genesis chapter one, he said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Back up. Elohim said, let us make man in our image. Elohim. Western ideology will superimpose the Trinity into that text. And that's why we have some really bad Trinitarian doctrine. Not to say there isn't a Trinitarian thread to the scripture. But this is where bad Trinitarian doctrine comes in because we're superimposing ourselves into the text and our doctrine in the text and just simply seeing what the text says. It says, in the beginning, God. That word God is Elohim. And that word Elohim is the plural version of God. In the beginning, it would be more appropriate to say God's created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God's created heavens and the earth. And I said, wait, so there's multiple gods? again. We don't understand what the Elohim is. The Elohim isn't God. Among the Elohim is God. The Elohim are those who dwelled in the realm of the spirit. And so, again, you will see it all through Psalms. Actually, we're going to read about it in the next chapter, actually, tomorrow. We'll, we'll, we'll read about it the next chapter. I just realized that. We're already there. We'll read the next chapter tomorrow. Um, but the Elohim, among the Elohim, that is, among the spiritual, those who existed, the beings in the realm of the spirit. Again, this is Hebrew doctrine. This is the way the Hebrews understood it. Among the Elohim is El Elyon. El Elyon, among him, among, El, among the Elohim is El Elyon, and El Elyon is the creator. El Elyon is the one who is above the Elohim. Again, among the Elohim is an Elohim that is above them. There's an L that is above the Elohim. And so, again, this is, this is I'm just giving you Bible. <laughs> okay. And so, read it tomorrow, Chuck. Come, come join me tomorrow. So now, among the Elohim is, and he says, let us make man in our image. So he's speaking to El, the Elohim. Now, the only reason why I'm bringing this up, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, because, I'm, again, this is what the Hebrews understood, is, is whatever the Elohim is, in the realm of the spirit, okay? Human beings are in on the earth. Whatever the Elohim are in the realm of the spirit, humans are on the earth. 
And so when he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, that word imaging is about the justice and the rule of God. Human beings were called to be imagers of God on earth. Let us make man in our image. Being man in his image is not simply being a symbol. It's an activity. That's why the next, ver- the next words in that verse is let him have dominion. That is, let him rule over the earth. We were called to rule over the earth under the authority of God. Yahweh, El Elyon. This is where now we have to now, this is where it all begins. Because God creates this earth, brings divine order to the earth, and then calls human beings to administrate this order. We are simply extensions of the rule and the authority of God on earth. This may be weird for some people because you've been taught something else. But it all begins here in Genesis. And then from Genesis, now what did we learn in Genesis um, chapter 3? What did we learn? We learned that man chose his own will over God's. This is where sin comes in because any deviation from God's authority, any deviation from God's rule on this earth is treason. And we know how ambassadors are treated when they commit treason. We know how ambassadors are treated when they commit treason. They're they're sentenced to death. If an ambassador to France, what does he do? He is a representative of the government of the United States. If he goes to France and starts doing what he wants, then he commits treason comes back and he's sentenced to death. This is the consequence of treason. And yet we, human beings, are God's extensions on the earth. We are the ambassadors of God on earth. We are co-rulers with God. We actually, and this is the other thing I've always said, and you guys have heard me say, and I'll say it again, that. God isn't doing anything on the earth without human participation. Because he places the word above himself, he rules the earth through humanity. Anything that's happening on earth is going to require human participation. Because it is how God ordered things and it's how God created things and it's how God instituted things. This is so important, fam, because I want you to understand that for many people, they do not know who they are. And because many people do not know who they are, they don't understand the profound gift that they have, the authority that they have, the power that they have, that they are, where each, each and every one of us are extensions of God on earth. Extensions of God on earth, co-ruling along with God. And when we choose to do something other than God's will, we commit treason. And what we find here in the text and what the Hebrews are trying to help those who who are willing to listen 
what they what they were what they were trying to help people understand is is that everything that is broken on the earth came out of mankind's treason to God because the divine order was established through the very character, the nature, the heart, and the will of God. So any deviation from that is sin. It could actually not be a bad thing, but because it isn't God's thing. And so again, we see that humanity now has been broken. And now I want to make sure, because I'm, I'm bringing you guys up to, to context and perspective, because I want you to see that this book is really at the thread of this book, the, the, the binding thread of this book is the story and the historicity of the Hebrew people. If you don't understand Hebrew people, you will not understand this Bible. And if you don't understand Hebrew people, you will not understand Christianity. And if you don't understand Hebrew people, you will not understand Christian faith. You cannot overlook that because if you do, you will overlook how profound what Jesus did on the cross was. And you will, you will overlook how incredibly profound the resurrection is and the implications of the resurrection. You will, you will, you will miss it. So what happens? Man has been, man has deviated from God. Man has committed treason. Man has committed treason. What does God do next? God says, I'm going to bring restoration to my people. And God's plan for restoration to bring the people back to right standing with him and to reestablish his justice and his righteousness on earth was through a family that he would institute through a man named Abraham. His name was Abram. When he believed God, he became Abraham. And through him would become a family. And that family became 12 sons. And those 12 sons became 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes went to Egypt. Uh, those 12 tribes grew in Egypt and became a nation, a nation inside of a nation. And because now they were a nation inside of a nation, not in the land they were supposed to be, they fell under captivity. Under captivity, they fell. And as a consequence of that, as a consequence of that, God then delivers them. He sets them free. They go through the wilderness. Notice now what's happening. The books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are actually a historical narrative. They're not a book. This is not a book of law. Okay? This is a historical narrative. This is a story about a people who God has set aside to bring righteousness and justice to the earth. And on their way, they get there. They're, they've left Egypt and they're Entering into the wilderness, they make a pit stop at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God makes a commitment and a covenant with them, a contract with them, that from here on out, they would be his people. He would be their God. They would be his people. He would be their God. And he gave them a law. Notice he gave them a law, not us a law. Ready for this? There are many of us here. I'm only doing this because there's so many people are on today. I want to make sure you catch this. There are those of you who read the Ten Commandments and you read it as if the Ten Commandments were written to you. They were not written to you. They were written to the children of Israel to reveal the holiness of God. And he gave them the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments was simply a prelude. After the Ten Commandments came a multiplicity of laws. And he gave them these laws. And after he instituted the laws, the people made a blood covenant with him and said, we will be the people that you've called us to be. 
We will be the people who will bring righteousness and justice. We'll be the people who will bring heaven on earth. We will be the people that bring the righteousness of God on earth. Ready for this. Pay very, very close attention because this is so critically important for the people who read um, Genesis or who read Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and who spit Bible verses at people telling them that this is what they need to do in order to go to heaven. Has anyone seen anywhere here so far where these people are concerned with heaven and hell? You have been reading with me. There are those of you who've been in the read and rant and you've been journeying with me. This wasn't about heaven and hell. This was about the righteousness of God on earth. This is about God establishing his righteousness and his justice on earth. This is about God making all things right to the imagers that he has on earth. This is about God doing what would need to be done in the realm of the earth while he's bringing justice and righteousness in the realm of the spirit. Among the Elohim was Lucifer. Yes. <laughs> Among the Elohim was Lucifer. Lucifer disobeyed God. But among the Elohim is El Elyon, Yahweh, the one who is above all, who institutes and who righteously judges the Elohim. I say that to you because what the Elohim were in the realm of the spirit, we are on earth. We are extensions of God's righteousness and God's rule. And now he wants to bring that awareness again to his people. And he's chosen a family to do it. And this family has become a nation. And he tells these people, here's the law. And he gave them a law. This law was meant and intended to shape them. This was not about heaven and hell. This was about a shaping them and about a distinguishing them and about making them distinct from all other nations so all would pay attention that this law and this rule would reveal the holiness and the righteousness of God. And of course, we read through Exodus, and it doesn't take you long to realize that these people could not obey the law. They disobeyed it over and over again. They broke it over and over again. And as they broke it over and over again, God, in the multiplicity of times, was like, man, I'm done with these people. However, because of God's love and grace and mercy, he gave us Leviticus. So many people don't understand what the book of Leviticus is all about. The book of Leviticus is not a book of rules. Okay, The book of Leviticus was a book to help articulate how these people who continually break God's law can enter back into the presence of God. The book of Leviticus opens with God leaving them. The book of Leviticus closes with God being reconciled to them because the book of Leviticus is actually about the law of atonement. It was about uncleanliness. It was about those who were unclean, who continued to disobey God. And here are the laws now that God is instituting. God put a backup plan to give a people who were unholy and unrighteous back of um, access back to him. He declares to them that the life is in the blood. So it is through now the blood and the blood sacrifice that people have been given access back to God. This is so important, family, because the book of Leviticus, we're so busy trying to read the rules. Should I wear tattoos? Uh, what kind of clothes should I wear? You know, what kind of food should I eat? What should I do? You missed it. You missed it. The book of Leviticus was not written to you. So stop looking at what you should be doing. Rather, look at what God has done and what he has accomplished through these people. And God now reveals his glory. He reveals his grace. He reveals his love and that he gave us Leviticus as a means by which we cannot enter back into the presence of God. These people have been given access back to God through the sacrifice. Through the word there is atonement. If you ever want to go back and learn about what the atonement is all about, just read Leviticus. So the book of Leviticus opens with them not having access to the presence of God. The book of Leviticus closes with them 
now with the priest being able to now access God. And now because they have the presence of God, they're able to leave Mount Sinai. They spent the entire time Mount Sinai never leaving because they did not have the presence. And once they had the presence, they were able to build the tabernacle, which reflected his presence and represented his presence. And so the book of Numbers is now their journey. They get to the book of Numbers. So the book of Numbers is now their journey. And they journey through because now they have the presence. They have the access to God through the fact that even though they continue to break his law, they have a way back in. That is through the daily sacrifice, the daily blood offering. They had a way back into the presence of God. They had a ticket back into the presence of God. And they continue to use that ticket back into the presence of God. And then... They get to, um, they get to Canaan, and they fear. And because of their fear, because of their lack of faith, notice not because of their sin, but because of their lack of faith, they were not given access to go into the promised land. Because this land that was promised was one in which they would become this nation to be the representative to show all other nations, reconciling all nations to show all other nations how God meant for human beings to rule on earth. But they broke the law over and over again, and yet God gave them access. The problem was faith. So because of lack of faith, God said, these people ain't coming. These people aren't going. And so then what happens? What happens is, is again, you know, he says, we're going to wait a whole generation, 40 years, and this new generation is going to go in, and they're going to establish this righteousness, this justice. They're going to be the people who were called, who would bring and usher in the kingdom of God on earth. They didn't trust God. They didn't have faith in him, so they couldn't go into the promised land. And long story short, the new generation is about to enter in. So they gave them Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy literally means the law again. <laughs> it means the law again. So they gave them the law again to remind them, this is what we gave the generation before you. And that's why it sounds repetitive. This is what we, this is what we gave the generation before you. So here it is. So it gives them the law. And after he gives them the law again, he's reminding them of everything they had before. And once they received it, then they entered into the promised land. Of course, we know the story. Moses disobeyed God. And because of that reason, he remained um, in the wilderness when they entered and Joshua took over. Joshua subdues the land, over, overtakes the land. And after he subdues the land, and after he overtakes the land, he begins to establish order. He begins to establish justice. And he begins to establish his law. Ah, but judges, well, judges is how now the neighboring nations begin to influence the children of Israel. Rather than Israel influencing them and living as, as God intended to show others how God intends for people to live among one another, how God's righteousness must be established. Instead, what did they do? They chose to be influenced by the Canaanites. And so they became a Canaanite nation. And so the book of Judges shows how the law actually does not do anything to change anyone's heart. The law cannot change anyone's heart. The Ten Commandments cannot change anyone's heart. You know what? Let me let me let me let me, let me repeat that. I need some people to see that. If you read through the entire scripture, if you read through the entire text, what you should discover is the rules in the Bible don't change a single person's heart. 
your heart cannot change because you follow the Ten Commandments, because you follow all the Levitical laws and Levitical rules. They don't change your heart. They can't change your heart. And if you don't want proof, or if you want proof, sorry, if you want proof that the law can't change your heart, just read through the Bible. Read through the first five books of the Bible and see how the people who received the law and even had an encounter with God still did not change. Because the law cannot change you. The law cannot save you. But for some reason, we like to do what they did. And we like to act the way they act. And we like to submit ourselves to what they submitted to. Not realizing that they were just like, um, that we are just like them. Influenced by the nations around us, by the cultures around us. They were influenced by the Canaanites. They became not only the Canaanite nation, but by the time the book of Judges ends, they were about, they were just as bad as them. We see everything wrong with humanity through Israel. Through Israel. Everything wrong with humanity. And at the end of the book of Judges, we see that they've lost the nation. The scriptures tell us that there was no king. It's one of the travesties. The book of Judges ends with there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's one of the saddest ways to end the book. It's one of the saddest endings to a book. And that's how the book of Judges ends. The book of Judges ends with there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So they wanted a king. Not realizing they had a king. They had one who was ruling. Who wanted them to rule through him. Who wanted them to have dominion. That it wasn't a one person to rule, but rather all who would rule through him, one with him, in him. And yet here they are asking for a king. They asked for Saul because Saul was what they wanted. Saul looked good. But Saul didn't work out. They got David. And after David, we know that David was a man after God's own heart, but even David fell short. David falls short. And among David, we see a split and a fracture in the family. One side, Absalom. The other side, Solomon. Solomon, again, asked for wisdom, but even Solomon. And notice the lineage continued through Solomon because Solomon was a child of the covenant. Absalom, while he was the oldest, committed treason against David. The nation of Israel began to split into two. We had the northern side, which was called Israel. We had the southern side, which was called Judah. The nation of Israel is split. And now while they split, Solomon ruled in the south. And even though he ruled in the south, Rehoboam ruled in the north. I'm sorry, I'm just giving you the whole... I'm journeying through the whole thing. I'm sorry. I just realized that. I guess that's what it is today. That's all right. It's our journey. Because it's going to get to my point, to what I want to get to. Because I think this is so critically important. Because now we see the history of Israel, who even afterwards, still, you can you, you, you sense there's a tension here. We're not here. We have not arrived. We have not arrived. And that's what Israel is getting to, is we have not arrived. Now the nation of Israel split. We see everything wrong with humanity. You, if you want to see what's wrong with the human condition, just read about the chosen people of God. These people who were chosen to serve, to sacrifice. These people who were chosen to, to reveal the glory of God. These people who were chosen not to impose power over people, but these people who were chosen to reveal the grace, the love of God, to show the world what God was like and to establish God's righteousness and justice on earth. These people fell short. And of course, the northern side has its capital, Samaria. The southern side has its capital, Jerusalem. The northern side fell apart. 
was overtaken by the Assyrians. The southern side um, was overtaken all because the kings were unfaithful. That's what the book of Kings is all about. We just read through it. The book of Chronicles gives us even more insight and more detail to what happened during that period of time. I want you to see the perspective of the Hebrew people family, because here they are now. They've seen all of this. They've experienced all of this. They've gone through all of this. And then while all this is happening, we get to Ezra, because now they've gone to captivity. They've gone to Babylon. And even though they've gone to Babylon, we're just reading all through this. Notice we're just just going through the text right now. They've gone to Babylon. And after spending an extensive amount of time in Babylon, almost a century in Babylon, then a Babylonian king, sorry, um, um, a Persian king gets revelation that I need to send them back to the land that was promised to them. So he sends them back and there's Ezra and then there's Nehemiah and there's Jerubabel, all coming back to bring and to establish again the nation of Israel once more. And then there's Esther. Y'all remember her? Esther was in captivity. Um, Esther, sorry, not in captivity, was in exile because again, all the Hebrews were in exile. These are, not, not, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. These are, this is, this, I'm just giving you the full picture here of what has transpired up until this point. These people who believed the, that they were the children of God, these people who were chosen by God, these people who have stories and stories of all the things that God has done and has accomplished, these people now don't have a home. They don't have a land. They don't have a king. They're in captivity. They're scattered all about the earth. Esther being, Esther being one, sorry, not Esther, Ruth being one of them. And they teach us Because what Ruth does is Ruth teaches us how we navigate as exiles. How we who live in exilic reality where this is not our home. Spread all around the earth. Don't have a home. Don't have a land. How do you confront that? The book of Job that we read was, yes, we read about Job's suffering, but we read something greater, that justice is not about, is not coincided with suffering, that justice and suffering go hand in hand. And then we get to the book of Psalms. The reason why I gave you that whole background is because it's so important for you to understand why these songs exist. The closest thing and the closest analogy that I have or the closest um, uh, example that I have to the book of Psalms would be the Negro spirituals. People who had no land. People who had no authority, no sovereignty. The book of Psalms was just a version of the Negro spiritual. It was songs written by people who were in exile, scattered all around the earth, who had no enfranchisement, no sense of place, who were under oppression, who were suffering, 
and yet they wrote songs. And the songs that they wrote were songs of hope, songs of peace, songs of joy, songs of pain, songs of suffering. And they wrote those songs because they needed daily reminders that God is not done with them yet. Needed daily reminders that God was still at work. Needed daily reminders of what God has done and what God will do. And even though I'm in pain right now, God ain't done with me yet. The power of the book of Psalms is that it speaks to how people who are in the midst of suffering, how people who have been scattered, who've been down and out, how people still even in the midst of all that should never lose hope. Fam, fam, never lose hope. Never lose hope. Never look at what you're going through. Never look at the circumstances. As a matter of fact, look at how far God has taken you. Look how far God has taken you from the, from, from the distance, from the depth, from all that God has taken you. And yes, you're not there yet. You have not arrived, but God is not done with you yet. Oh no, he who has begun a good work will complete it. He ain't done yet. He's not done yet. He's not finished with you. And, 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 and so when you read the text, I want you to read this text from the perspective now of a people who by every measure are in pain and are suffering, and yet they read these songs. It reminds me of the stories that we hear of the Negro spirituals and the Negroes who used to, who would sing these songs. Even while they suffered, they sang the songs. And it's interesting because we see the spirit of God that even though these people did not know the songs, they were still given a song. And it's funny that even in the midst of pain, God has a way of giving you a song. Sing unto the Lord a new song. He gives you a song. And I think often we want to simply quench the song, but it's the song that God is giving you that's going to give you the power to endure, the power to overcome, the power to get through whatever you're going through. Because get this, you're not done yet and God's not done with you. And if God's not done with you, and if you're not done yet, God just needs you to get through this. And what he's going to give you, he's going to give you something to satiate, whatever it is that you're going through. And yes, the pain is hard. Yes, it's difficult. And yes, it's challenging. And yes, you're going through it. And yes, you're questioning God. And yes, but God gave you a song. And if God gave you a song, you need to sing it. You need to sing it. This isn't about theological uh, breadth. This isn't about theological wisdom. This isn't about the depth of theological understanding. This isn't about, I understand everything God is doing. We read here as we're reading through the book of Psalms, and this is where I'm getting to. And I hope you guys get to where I've got to, because I know I took a while for me to get there, but I had to make sure you understood and that you saw it from the perspective that I see it, is that as I read this, we see a people who, even while they're praising God, they're questioning God. Even while they're praising God, they're like, wait, God, why would you do this to me? How can you praise and still question God? Because faith is not doubt. Let me say that one more time. There's some people right now who are dealing with doubt. Faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith isn't doubt. Faith is trust. Some people think, man, something's wrong with my faith because I'm doubting and I'm questioning. No, it's nothing wrong with your faith because you're doubting and you're questioning. As a matter of fact, because you're in relationship with God and because you trust him, you present your doubt to him. 
Some of us, we give up the moment that we doubt. And yet, even when we read through the Psalms, we see psalmists who question God and praise him at the same time. It's trusting him, even though you don't understand why it is that I'm going through what I'm going through. It's trusting him, even though you're going, hold on, man, this don't make no sense. And there are those of us who will read the book of Psalms and we have a tendency and, I, and this is what I want to draw your attention to, especially as we're reading the second book in the book of Psalms. Because um, the book of Psalms is not a book, as I mentioned to you before. The book of Psalms is actually a compilation of songs, but it's actually broken up into five books. But when you read this, I want you to pay attention because a lot of us will only read a snippet of the praise. We'll only read the slice in the chapter that aligns with our moment of praise and worship. That's all right. That's all right. But fam, read the whole chapter. Because even in the snippet of praise, there's a snippet of pain. Even in the snippet of pain, there's a snippet of doubt. So today, what we're being challenged with is with the reality that even though life isn't going exactly the way I want it to, I can sing a song to God. And I can still have a praise even in the midst of my pain. And maybe I don't fully understand everything that's going on in that moment, but I know God's not done with me yet. Father, I thank you today. Lord, that you just give us an opportunity, Lord, to journey through your word once more. And I, Lord, am compelled today by this reality, Lord, that even in the midst of our pain, we can still find a praise. Lord, teach us, Lord, to trust you, to rely on you, to know that we've been called by your name, to have have confidence in knowing that even though some of this pain is self-inflicted, even though we know some of this pain is, it's us. And some of it, we just don't know where it's coming from. We don't understand it. We don't know how long we'll go through it. And we don't know why we go through it. But Lord, we still trust you. And we still give you praise even in the midst of that. So Father, thank you for convicting us of that truth. Thank you for convicting us of that reality. Bless us today. Let's be reminded of that today. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Family, God bless you all. I love you guys. By the way, um, I, I want to encourage you guys, become a patron, become a patron. We've got goals this year. And one of the things that I want to do is I want to really commit more of my energy, effort, and resource. I thank God for all the patrons who are patrons now who are supporting. Um, I know for some of you, it's $10 a month. $10 a month is a big deal. I love you for that. Thank you so much for committing and becoming a patron. I want to encourage those of you who are here. And if you can't afford it, you can't do it. It's not for you. I'm still doing this and I will continue to do this, but I really want to expand what I do 